Welcome to Startup Dads, a podcast about the highs and lows of building a business and raising a family at the same time. For more information about the topics we cover on the podcast and other Startup Dads related content, you can follow us on Twitter at Startup Dads Pod. I'm Amrit, co-founder of Hyper Exponential, a tech startup that I co-founded in 2017. It's grown from a two-person team working out of my kitchen to a profitable business with several large clients and more than 20 team members across London and Europe. I'm also dad to Evie, my first child who was born last December. So this week, the podcast is the Startup Mums podcast, and I'm delighted to welcome Tessa Clark to the show. Tessa, can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what makes you a startup mum? Hi, yes, yeah, so it's great to be with you. I'm a startup mum because I'm co-founder and CEO of Olio. And Olio is an app that exists to tackle the enormous problem of waste in our homes. And we do that by connecting people with their neighbors so you can give away rather than throw away your spare food and other household items. And we've got about 4 million Olioers to date. And then I'm a mum to two young children, a little boy who is eight years old, a little girl who is six years old. And the little girl, her sort of birth and growth has been completely sort of in lockstep with Olio. They're pretty much the same age. So I've definitely got three children. That is absolutely amazing. It's something I can relate to too. When I was telling my wife that I had you on the show, she was super excited because she is a big <laughs> fan of Olio oh, and a big fan amazing. of the uh, work you do and the kind of efforts you're, you're making to try and help the world to become a little bit more environmentally sensitive. So that takes me on to my very first question, uh, which is about mission. So incredibly clear that Olio is a very mission-oriented business. It's got a really clear sense, very natural sense of purpose. So I want to talk to you a little bit about kind of motivations for doing that. So, you know, lots of people have different motivations for setting up a startup i'm just really interested to understand you know your sense of mission about what the right thing to do what was when you founded olio and then how that relates to your teaching your kids you know the right thing as well so you're absolutely right they say that there are two types of founders there are missionary founders and mercenary founders sasha my mm. co-founder and i are squarely in the camp of being missionary founders so we get up every single day to solve this enormous problem or fulfill this objective we set ourselves, which is to get to a billion oleoers by 2030. And the reason why we need to do that is because if humanities have any chance whatsoever of living in a 1.5 degree warmed world, then we've got mm. to solve the problem of food waste at scale. And we kind of need to do it yesterday. The original light bulb moment, I guess, if you like for oleo came about six years ago now when I was living and working in Switzerland and moving back to the UK. And on moving day, the removal men said I had to throw away all of our uneaten food. And I'm a farmer's daughter originally, so I know from my own childhood just how much hard work goes into producing food. And I wouldn't dream of throwing perfectly good food in the bin. And so much mm. the irritation of the removal men, I <laughs> stopped packing and instead bundled up uh, sort of my little kids who at the time were a newborn and a toddler, which as all of your parent listeners will know is a kind of 45 minute exercise in and of itself um, on moving day. And so I set out kind of clutching this food plus the little ones and went out into the streets to try and find someone to give my food to. And to cut a long story short, I failed miserably. I got very over emotional about the fact that I'd gone to all this effort to try and share this food and had failed. I shed a few tears of exasperation, but I wasn't to be defeated. And I went back to my apartment. And when the packing men weren't looking, I smuggled the non-perishable food into the bottom of my packing boxes. And that was the point where I just thought, this is crazy. I'm going to such lengths to avoid throwing away perfectly good food. Uh, I know there must be 
people near me who would love this they mm-hmm. promise I just don't know about it and that was where the idea for olio came about and then my co-founder sasha and i researched the problem of food waste what we discovered blew our brains and we knew that we absolutely had to commit the rest of our lives really to solving this enormous problem i love hearing about the eureka moment I love the fact that you had to juggle that with bundling two kids up, yeah. which, as you say, yeah. is, a, is an emotional experience by itself. Yes, exactly. Uh, just going off down that kind of road a, a little bit, how does that influence the strategy that you use when you're building a business? Because, you know, one of the things about building a business is you, generally you have investors and you have lots of people who want the business to go in a certain direction. And, you know, you have a very clear sense of mission. And do you, do you find that that kind of, uh, and there'll be times when that, I suppose, helps and helps you give, give you a kind of North Star. And there are times where it kind of introduces tension, I suppose. So you're absolutely right in that, um, having a mission is incredibly powerful and it took me quite some time to really understand just how powerful it is so first of all just on a personal level I often say to people I've had three sort of zero to one experiences in my life one was meeting mm. my now husband one was having my kids and the third one was founding Olio and doing work with purpose so every single day getting up knowing that what you're doing makes a difference is transformative Working in kind of in a mission-based business is also unbelievably powerful because you are able to attract a caliber of employee or sort of teammate, which is just quite frankly another level. So we've been always been out, able to outpunch our weight because we have such an incredibly strong mission, and more and more people are wanting to get up every single morning and go to work knowing that what they're doing is is making a difference. And then the third thing that's really transformative about having a strong mission is what it does to your company culture because everybody is pulling in the same direction. There is no politics because we are Mm. all here in service of the greater good, in service of the mission. So that creates just a really nice, energizing, kind of non-exhausting work environment. Then we're often asked that question about the tension, sort of Mm. uh, how do you balance that sort of profit with purpose? And I actually kind of can find that question a little bit frustrating if I'm being really honest because I think for too long we've been stuck in this crazy dichotomy where we think that if you want to do good in the world then you're probably a charity and you're not really going to scale that much but you do a lot of good or you're going to kind of grow and be hugely successful as a business but you'll create all sorts of horrific negative externalities to the environment and to the community to us that sort of way of seeing the world is missing out on this third path which is combining profit with purpose uh, and doing that at scale. You know, nowadays you wouldn't sort of ask, oh, how do you balance sort of being a successful business with treating your employees well? <laughs> That's right? a really we've, good we've, point. Sort of, we've moved beyond that conversation. We all know that if you treat your employees well, then it will come back to you threefold on your bottom line. And the mm. same also applies to mission and to purpose. And in particular, the largest problems facing humanity today are going to be solved by businesses that have purpose embedded into them in in their core. For us, our purpose and our sort of profit, although we're not yet profitable, they're totally inextricably linked. The more people who join Olio, the Mm. more food and other household items are shared and saved, the more impact we have. But also that is where the sort of transfer of value takes place. And so that is what enables us to monetize. So the two things are in sync with one another. They're not in conflict. 
absolutely awesome answer. And I, I suppose it speaks to the the challenge or the benefit of aligning incentives. And I think your, your point there about actually having a very na- a natural alignment incentives is actually the best mm. kind of rebuttal to the fact that these things sit in opposition. Because you're absolutely right. Uh, it's a, it, when you frame it like that, it's actually in everyone's interests, you know, for you to go yeah, about doing this. Totally. And so how does that cross the kind of uh, barrier over into teaching your kids how to do the yeah. right thing and, you know, setting the example that way? Well, it's incredibly helpful and incredibly positive. So one, my kids get to see me sort of at my best and at my worst, but, you know, kind of at my best in terms of being fulfilled and being energized and engaged and excited by what I'm doing. I think they feel, even though they're super young, I talk to them about the positive impact that Olio is having sort of on the world, but also on individuals and on people in our community. And they can really relate to that. They can really get their heads around the fact that we are often helping people to access food that they wouldn't have otherwise been able to. We are helping people to build friendships and relationships in their local mm. communities. And they understand that actually mummy and daddy would have an awful lot more money if I had kept on working in the corporate world uh, you know and and that's very clear to them but they know that what we've lost in sort of financial wealth we have more than made up for in sort of emotional spiritual wealth and also in terms of how we live as a family because founding olio and working from home which is how we work has enabled us to have a really really tight family unit so i don't think any of us see it as as a sacrifice even though you know, I'm being paid a lot less than I would have been otherwise. I absolutely agree. Uh, yeah, the 95% pay cut that I took when I uh, set yeah. up Ajax. I hear you. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things that really, well, it focuses your mind, doesn't it, actually? Yeah. You know, I, I really like the phrase that say values are only values if they cost you money. Uh, it's an interesting framing. I'm yeah. not sure it's complete, completely exhaustive, but as you rightly say, you know, you're aware of the trade-off you've made. Yeah, and I think I'm also able to really point out to the kids through my experience of Olio and how many people in our country are having such a tough time. You know, there are over Mm. 8 million people in the UK living in food poverty. And as a family, we talk about that quite a lot. And so um, when we're sort of trying to live on a bit of a a budget, there's there's never any pushback from my kids about that because they understand that whilst we are not doing as much as we could have done, how fortunate we are in every single aspect of our lives and i think that's really healthy for kids to grow up not taking everything for granted you talked a lot about you know working from home and how you how you've made that work to your advantage so i wanted to pick up on kind of dealing with pressure points at work so uh, you know olio it sounds like you had the characteristic dip and then hockey dip growth that lots of the uh, businesses who've thrived through the pandemic have had how have you made that work with family life well, so I, I think there's sort of two questions in there. There's this sort of how did Olio survive in the pandemic and then how did me and my family um, survive? And the two are pretty inextricably linked. So we had a really tense uh, couple of days really when the first lockdown was announced because it was deeply unclear whether a neighbor to neighbor food sharing app could continue to exist mm. or not. But Sasha and I listened really uh, carefully to our community who told us in no uncertain t- terms that we had a responsibility to keep operating and then we also work closely with our food lawyer and environmental health officer and we figured out a way basically we switched all the messaging in the app to 
help people understand how to share safely and legally during COVID. And the key change was that all pickups had to become no contact pickups. Mm. So we had a really, really intense sort of period of time transitioning kind of the way Olio worked kind of on the doorstep for the handover. And then we had a really intense period of time when the kids were sent home from school, you know, and we had sort of the, yeah. uh, the, the, the schools were closed. I It was actually through my kids. My kids said to me when I told them uh, the breakfast after the, Boris Johnson made the announcement and I told them they wouldn't be going to school anymore after Friday, they asked me, they said, but mum, what about the kids that depend upon school meals? Because mm -hmm. again, that's something we've kind of talked about as a family. And I hadn't sort of thought about that up until that point of time. And I was like, oh my God, that is a great question. What about those kids? And I then sort of looking at my kids felt very, very emotional about the fact that I then discovered there's 1.3 million children who as of that Monday would not be having access to free school meals. And so we immediately, um, I sort of brainstormed with myself about what on earth I could do, given we had the Olio and the platform to help those school children and very much inspired by my own kids. And so we lit, uh, kicked off a campaign called Cook for Kids. And we encouraged our community to, as of that Monday, cook and prepare spare lunches and add them to the app so that local families could pick them up and not have to um, struggle so much during that time. And we got 20 celebrity chefs involved who provided recipes for our community to follow along with. Uh, and we had well over 30,000 meals shared in that way. So, and then, and then that kind of really started this, as you kind of touched on that kind of hockey stick growth for Olio through the pandemic. I think people recognize in a really, really visceral way how valuable and important food is. It is literally our life source. Also, people were wanting to connect with their local community. They were wanting to help people. They were sort of decluttering while stuck at home. The actual sharing itself became a lot easier because they were living and working from home. And then also many people started to think a lot more about what do I really need? And do I need to consume endlessly like I have been? And, and what does sort of living more sustainably look like? So all of those things resulted in a big um, uptick for Olio. So that's kind of how Olio kind of got through the pandemic. In terms of, for me, things that sort of have enabled uh, us as a family to make this work, the, the sort of key hack that we've had that we've always used is the fact that I work from home. So Olio from day one has been a remote first business. And the reason cool. for that is was just really practical. Sasha and I were both mums with young kids. We didn't live in the same city and neither of us wanted to spend time we didn't have and money we didn't have commuting to an expensive office, especially in this day and age where there are so many tools that enable you to work effectively Absolutely. online. We've now grown to a team of 40 people and we're still a remote first business. And so for us as a business, transitioning through COVID wasn't actually that dramatic. You know, I was kind of already set up with that sort of home working setup prior to um, COVID mm. hitting. And that's enabled me sort of through the lockdown to kind of balance the homeschooling because I didn't have to do such a big adjustment in, in my work life. Yeah, that must have made a huge difference. I think it's one of those really interesting uh, I love talking to founders who were remote previously because I feel like you you had this kind of secret knowledge which feels so obvious uh, well, nowadays. Do you know, <laughs> you, do you know we, we did. So we used to call it our dirty little secret because right. we kind of got sick and tired of trying to explain to people how amazing <laughs> remote first working was and how on every single way it saved us time, it saved us money, we were more efficient, we could balance our family life, we could recruit and retain outstanding talent from across the whole country, mm. you know, 
on less expense than if we were trying to get everyone to, to sort of go into London. We had a much more diverse team as a result of having a remote first policy and we had a happier team, but no one believed us. <laughs> so we kind of gave up trying to explain to people how, our, how brilliant uh, a remote first model was. And we just sort of just, you know, used to omit that in our external conversations. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, you, you know, HX certainly wasn't as remote first as we are now or remote remote oriented as we are now. But I certainly feel like, it, you know, there are probably lots of businesses like yours that are like, oh, this is irritating. This is a secret wedge we had. And now actually lots of people have been doing it. <laughs> Do you know what? I was thinking that just today. I was like, God, we had, you know, we had such an advantage because there were so few businesses that were recru- recruiting uh, remote positions, whereas now pretty much everybody is. But We've still got our mission, so. Absolutely, absolutely. It, it does really resonate, you, you know, your, your point about having a mission can anchor you and tell you the right thing to do without really needing, you don't need that much of a decision-making framework to work yeah. out what to do because you have a very, very clear mechanism by which you can judge your actions. And that's really interesting. For sure. And and the beauty of working from home, which obviously many people are experiencing, and don't get me wrong, there's plenty of people who are struggling with working from mm. home as well. And I don't want to, uh, you know, if you haven't got the right setup. Um, I don't yes. want to sort of uh, undermine that. But in our kind of experience, I've found it just an amazing, amazing opportunity to be incredibly present as a parent. So building Olio whilst working from home means that I haven't missed any sort of first steps or milestones or anything like that because I've been able to be here the whole time. And my kids have been a really important part of that journey as well. For sure. So Tessa, can I ask, how do you make it work in terms of managing the kind of headspace? Because one of the challenges I found is, uh, and I suppose it's maybe slightly different with Evie, Evie's 18 months old, and just like me, doesn't listen to a word that anyone else says. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things I found so difficult is actually, you know, it's been such a joy to, to be at home and to be with Evie, but I've certainly found it very difficult to manage my headspace and stay yeah. focused on either Evie or work. You know, I found yeah. myself regularly doing 50-50, which is actually zero-zero in some, at certain yeah. points. I, I think I've got two, two responses to that. One, it gets easier. Um, you know, certainly kind of, yeah, c- certainly I found the very early sort of days of Olio when I had a, a newborn and a toddler and, and no childcare support at all. You know, that was just unmanageable. Now, you know, the minute I had kind of a four-year-old and a six-year-old, it just, I was like, oh my God, this is incredible. I, I, yeah. They can actually, to some degree, sort of take care of themselves. Um, yes. And I, I do get a bit more headspace. So it's definitely much easier now than it was then. Um, the first year of Olio was, I was a broken person by the end of it because I had taken this leap into the world of entrepreneurship. I felt like a massive imposter. I had no childcare support, newborn and a toddler. And it were, and I was having to consult as well, do consulting work, sort of bring in the cash. And we were living in a house that my husband was renovating and we were all kind of living out of one room, always in two feet of dust. So it was a really, really challenging year. And I was still kind of you know, breastfeeding fairly intensively as well. Um, and the end of that year, I just realized that this was not sustainable and I just could not carry mm. on in that way. And the breakthrough that I had was I booked myself into a gym class at 9.30 on a Monday morning and one at 9.30 on a Friday morning. And it was just a game changer for me because it just gave me that time that was sort of just for me. It enabled yeah. me to start getting fitter and healthier and then I became happier and 
the first few times I did it, I was just absolutely convinced I was still sort of, I guess, had that corporate indoctrination. I was just waiting for someone to tap me on the shoulder and <laughs> tell me off that yeah. I should be at work and at my desk at this time. But I've now gone a full 360 on that sort of mental framework. Whereas now I sort of carve out time every day of my uh, working week to do some form of exercise, whether it be walking or running or cycling, mm. that is for me. I feel unapologetic about it now because I recognize that that is my, the most valuable thing that I can do for my business is take myself out for a walk. And I listen to podcasts as well. And so I'm, I'm kind of getting out into the fresh air, I'm getting fit and I'm learning a huge amount as well. So I'm constantly sort of sending emails to myself whilst I'm on my walk or run yeah. with all these great insights and inspirations I've had from listening to the podcast. And that's just a really, really important part for me of kind of making it all work. Yeah. A good crisp walk with some time for your own headspace to kind of, yeah, to decompress a little bit is mm -hmm. often one of the most productive hours of the day, I think. So I want to take a slightly different tack now uh, and talk about you as a founder mum, because yeah. you are absolutely amazing CEO, founder in a very male dominated sector, uh, yeah. working in an incredibly valuable industry. So can you talk to me about your perspective on, you know, how you set an example uh, as a leader, I suppose, you know, to your kids, but also at work? So I talk to my kids about this sort of stuff, even though they're very young. I've decided to be quite open and transparent with them about sort of the way the world is currently in terms of some of the challenges that I face operating in a, in a male-dominated world. Um, I felt I had a choice. It was like either I kind of ignore it and don't talk about it and hope the kids don't notice or I just be <laughs> open and transparent. And, and to a certain extent, I kind of felt a bit guilty. I'm like, oh, maybe I'm sort of bursting their bubble that the world is this perfectly beautiful egalitarian place. But part of the thing that kind of prompted me to be open with my kids was as I started looking at all the material they were consuming, I felt that I had to actually point out the, the lack of equality in that material. So, you know, classic example, I can remember with the uh, Paw Patrol, and my little boy, you know, they kind of go through, well, they go through the ages and at a certain age, they're kind of in love with Paw Patrol, the, uh, the cartoon. And my little boy was obsessed by it, loved it. And then my little girl kind of reached that age and she also sort of fell in love with Paw Patrol. But she, there was only one female character that she could sort of relate to, which is Sky. And I think there's kind of the main character is a little boy. And I think there's kind of four or five other male characters. And that just made me so angry. And, and that, was kind of one of just thousands of countless examples of a lack of equality that exists mm. in the media and information and imagery and messaging that is being bombarding our kids every single day. And so that made me realize, you know what, I'm going to talk to my kids about this. Um, so to help them sort of interpret the world that they see. And I had a real sort of super proud sort of mum moment when my little boy came home from school the other day and he's like, mum, 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 I've got to tell you something amazing. And I said, what? And he said, the person who wrote Harry Potter, she's a woman. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? Isn't that brilliant? Like that's one of the best books in the world. And he was sort of cheerleading women. And he always points out to me all great that's examples awesome. of women sort of doing stuff. And I, I think that we're only going to get equality in the world, actually, not just for women fighting for it, but also our sort of male supporters kind of being in our court as well. So I have conversations with my kids about it. I also, my kids give me the 
inspiration and anger sort of in equal measure to to fight against the male domination that exists in my world specifically um i get very very angry about the fundraising landscape so mm. in the world of venture capital roughly one percent of all vc funding goes to female founded businesses yeah. 89 percent goes to male founded businesses and the delta goes to mixed teams and that makes me really really angry because as i look out at the entrepreneurs who are really solving some of humanity's biggest problems they are diverse founders and and not just female founders but you know people of color people from different socioeconomic backgrounds and these are precisely the people the people who are doing the most important job for humanity who are getting the least capital and as i look to the future and I look to the world i want my kids to have i know that these problems need to get solved and so that pushes me on to keep going against the odds to raise funding for example when quite frankly it'd be otherwise quite easy to give up in despair i can totally see that the, 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 what do they call it frustration driven development yes uh, that's, that's exactly it, what it is yeah makes total sense i had no idea you know that's really interesting that it's a one percent and then the difference that to extra ten percent is mixed teams so people talking about backing female founders actually yeah oh yeah the time they, they count actually... they count in the mixed teams <laughs> <laughs> right that's just yeah. that's unbelievable the startup world i think generally prides itself on being yeah. progressive but that is a an eye-watering statistic it is. And I think the other sort of challenge that I face in the sort of male domination of the world, actually, it's not so much that I face, but really, really interesting one that I've encountered is the challenge that my husband faces. So, you know, we are a very, uh, you know, quote unquote, modern family in that mm. I'm the one who's kind of working full time. And my husband is the primary carer for our kids. And for us and for our setup, that makes perfect sense that is the sensible way for us to have our sort of division of responsibilities but he constantly encounters derision skepticism just kind of unpleasantness around wow. that you know so people will say to him sort of when are you going to get a proper job and that makes me really angry because no one would say that to a woman who is looking after no. her children no one would say that and yet they say that to him and now luckily he's an incredibly strong, you know, charismatic, flamboyant, you know, very, very strong in a core person. And he doesn't let that affect him. But I really believe that we will never get equality for women unless we can in parallel allow men to reinvent their role in society as well. I couldn't agree more. It's one of the motivations for doing this podcast was just to focus the minds on the fact that, you know, there are working dads and working mums as much as there are stay-at-home mums and stay-at-home dads. Yeah. And, you know, you need to have a completely complementary. You hit the nail on the head when you said it, Tessa, about it's about having the complementary skill set, right? Yeah. And if you can yeah. if you constrain what any one of those groups, you you limit the opportunity for, to, to do that, which is nuts yeah. when you think about it. It's really insidious as well, that stereotype that's sort of being applied to him and not allowing him so you know arguably there is a lot more acceptance of me being a mum working mm. than there is of him being a dad looking after the kids yeah yeah and we've got to change that have to i think one of the things that you can testify to as i as i can is you know 
the non-startup partner in a relationship is one of the unsung heroes in the journey of the startup. And I think I always find that remarkable, you know, that people can say stupid things like that. It's like without him and without, you know, for we, without my wife, there is no HX, there is no Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Tessa, I'd like to ask you the question I ask every guest now, which is what's the biggest lesson you've learned from your journey in entrepreneurship that you'd like to pass on to your kids? So without a doubt, well, one, I've learned millions of lessons, but I think if I had to draw out the biggest lesson and indeed sort of a life philosophy, I would say that it has come from reading a book called The Lean Startup by Eric Mm. Ries. And The Lean Startup is all about getting sort of whatever you want to do out in the wild and in the hands of customers as quickly as you possibly can and then get some feedback and then learn from it and iterate. So that kind of test, measure, learn and doing that kind of on super tight feedback loops. And for the that's sort of how we work um, at Olio. But I've started realizing that actually just that philosophy and approach is one that's highly effective for sort of for my life overall. So I'm trying to look at For example, as a family, we've been on a journey to kind of reduce our plastic waste and to live more sustainably and eat more sustainably. And to do that, it has required a ton of experimentation. And it's only through experimenting that you find solutions that are kind of superior to what you're currently doing. And it's the same with kind of fitness and exercise. I've, you know, I started kind of experimenting a few months ago with what I call kind of in my head, like micro exercise. Like I lay down my (laughs) yoga mat, which is in between my desk and my door. And every time I want to get up, I have to kind of do some push-ups or do a plank or something like that. It would never have crossed my mind to do something sort of weird like that. Had I not embraced this sort of, this just test, measure, learn mentality. And I'm now just applying it to quite literally my whole entire life. And through doing that, I've discovered things that work for me that I would never have encountered if I'd just stayed in a rut and stayed with the status quo. And so I really hope for my kids that they will just try everything once, you know, maybe not everything, but you know, try most things once, see how it works, and then iterate and improve from that. And I do think that you'll find out what works for you as an individual mm-hmm. and you can use that sort of iterative process to get yourself towards you know fulfillment contentment happiness understanding who you are etc that idea of using a little bit of data and information to give you checkpoints and to reflect on reflect on uh to guide you is is absolutely like you say a super valuable critical startup lesson but as you rightly say carries over tremendously uh into life as well yeah Tessa, that has been an absolutely amazing episode. Before we close up, we'd like to do our regular feature, Startup Shoutouts, where we shine a light on some of the organisations, people, founders, or anyone in the startup ecosystem that we admire. Startup Shoutouts. Can you give us your startup shoutout? I can, yes. So first of all, I'd like to just do an overall sort of shoutout to every single diverse founder no matter how you define diverse because you're having to work 10 times as hard to get the same result as everybody else and it's really really hard anyway um Mm. so just keep on fighting the good fight you're doing an amazing job um and the world needs you to do what you're doing um i like everything to do with sustainable living and trying to solve sort of the climate crisis so i love a business called new wardrobe that enables people to swap clothes 
rather than just kind of leave them hanging in your wardrobe going to waste. Uh, I love on that sort of fashion front, I love another business called Thrift Plus where you can just kind of send all of your clothes to uh, Thrift Plus and they will sort of resell them for you and raise money for charity. And then I love a business called Safety Net, which is all about using super smart light technology to avoid bycatch in the fishing industry. So it turns out that certain fish are attracted to or repelled by different color lights. And just by shining those lights in the nets, you can avoid catching the wrong fish. And I think something crazy like 30% of all fish caught are are bycatch, which just, you know, tossed, you know, waste killed and then thrown back again. And I think this light technology um, can really, really help solve that problem some amazing uh, uh, mission-oriented businesses there we'll definitely put them in the show notes and give them a shout out on our social channels thank Tessa, you that's been an absolutely amazing episode uh, thank you so much uh, for coming on the show how can we find out uh, a little bit more about you olio what you're doing anything you want to tell us a little bit about that that we should do to catch up on uh yeah olio yeah, so this is the totally shameless plug Please do. <laughs> bit of the Absolutely. podcast. Um, clearly, I would love it uh, if everybody could download the Olio app. It's spelled O-L-I-O, and you can find it in the App Store and Google Play. And if you just Google us, you'll, you'll find our website. We're also pretty busy uh, and active on Instagram. We're at olio.app. And then you can catch me on Twitter. I'm at Tessa L.F. Clark. And then also I've started writing on Medium, sort of sharing a lot about the truth about the world in which we live, in particular as it pertains to the climate crisis, the biodiversity crisis, the resource depletion crisis, and really importantly, how it kind of intersects with us as individuals and consumers, what we can do in our homes. And then I also write about certain aspects of the startup journey as well. So at Tessa L.F. Clark on Medium. Perfect. Tessa, thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Many thanks to today's guest. You'll find links to them and their work in the show notes. It would really help us if you shared the show with a friend or colleague. So if you know someone who might find this podcast valuable, please pass it on to them. If you'd like to connect with me, reach out on Twitter at Startup Dad's Pod. 